Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to the Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. All right, welcome back to Fever Dreams. We're joined once again by Daily Beast congressional reporter, Sam Brody. Sam, how's it going? It's going great, Will. So good to be back. Absolutely. Glad to have you. First of all, Sam, did you see this kerfuffle at the Texas GOP convention in Houston over the weekend involving Representative Dan Crenshaw, or as some have called him, Dan Crenshaw. <laughs> oh boy. Yep, I have seen this. It's unusual. I'm trained to just like think of all of these types of confrontations happening in the halls of CPAC in that like desolate Maryland hotel ballroom space. We've all been there. We've all seen these confrontations happen. Alas, no, this was not at CPAC, and I did see it. It was pretty wild. Yeah, just to set it up, so we've got Dan Crenshaw, congressman from Texas, who you might think of as a pretty hard-right guy. Why would conservatives be mad at him? But there's always someone further to your right. And so Dan Crenshaw is, in a sort of a weird way, a very reviled character among your hardcore, very online Trump supporters, and particularly the young ones. Um, you know, Tucker Carlson has dubbed him uh, Eyepatch McCain, reference to Crenshaw's Eyepatch. I mean, just, just vile stuff, really. <laughs> to, oh, and we all hate John McCain so much, right? And so the backstory here is, that I think in particular, Crenshaw's perceived support for red flag laws on guns and has made him a target for these folks, including the Groypers and various kind of young Republican activists. So at the Texas GOP convention in Houston, one of these kind of these internet Twitter characters, a guy named Alex Stein, starts confronting Crenshaw. And he, initially, I saw him billing it as, why don't they let me ask Dan Crenshaw questions? And then he watched the video and he's just saying, I patch McCain, I patch McCain. So, I mean, this was not like a press briefing exactly. But basically, there ensues this a scuffle. And, and as you said, Sam, I mean, it's sort of evocative of when Groypers or other bad actors actors confront reporters at CPAC or politicians they don't like and sort of pursue them. Media, I'd build this as like an assault. I think an assault might have kind of oversold it if you watch the video. This Alex Stein character is very careful to avoid whacking Crenshaw, although some of the video is a little obstructed. What was your take on it? Yeah, I agree with you. I think assault is definitely not quite what's happening here. Also, that police officer, I don't know if he was with Crenshaw, but he, he appears mighty quickly in the course of this like little spat being filmed. But yeah, it didn't quite strike me that way. Well, can I ask you what the deal with this guy is, Alex Stein? You talked about it a little bit, but I feel like I see his name sometimes pop up and I'm like not quite totally sure what his deal is. Yeah, well, to be honest with you, I mean, I think this is sort of one of his first big moments, sort of breaking into larger interest on the riot or those of us who watch it. I mean, although I say that he has 150,000 Twitter followers, so obviously someone's watching him. I mean, this is a guy, I think he's kind of a YouTube prankster. He kind of gets in these confrontations with Republicans. He does all these stunts. And in this case, he kind of comes out of nowhere while Crenshaw's walking through the hallway and starts starts yelling at him. And it looks like he has one or two compatriots who are also yelling at Crenshaw. I will say, like, part of it, like I said, I mean, I don't know if it was an assault per se, but like these burly boys love to roughhouse. I mean, both both Stein and his cohort and then Crenshaw's security or sort of amateur security, they're just really big guys. I say this as a like 5'11 manlet, but I mean, these guys are like towering <laughs> over Crenshaw. I mean, just the scuffle really goes down. I mean, there's one point where it's kind of hard to tell what happened, but a really big guy on Crenshaw's side, seemingly in an attempt to sort of tackle Stein or, or head him off, goes head first into, the, into a wall. 
And I mean, this is like, if you imagine these kind of like confro hotel conference room walls, I mean, kind of like a waxy wall. And this guy just goes like, bang. And so things kind of like got pretty serious. And I think the larger takeaway here is, number one, these kind of far-right activists really hate Dan Crenshaw. But number two, it's that this tactic of just sort of like kind of confronting people and getting them on video, I think basically what I'm describing is known as loomering after Laura Loomer, which is sort of when these activists started to realize like, you know, it's actually not that difficult to confront these people in person, confront some of my opponents. And understandably for, for the figure, the politician or the reporter being confronted, it's a very kind of a very startling thing. There's not really a great way to deal with it besides just getting out of there. And so I think it's kind of an asymmetric thing because obviously Dan Crenshaw can't like just start roasting this guy. What I think is interesting about Crenshaw in this situation is two things. I mean, one, there's the obvious point and, and Willie you talked about it a little bit, but like this is not a rhino, right? Certainly there are things that Crenshaw has supported or considered that are out of step with like the hardcore MAGA right wing of the Republican Party. But like to sort of for that to invite this level of confrontation is really crazy. And I feel like a lot of the anti Crenshaw stuff is basically like just vibes, right? I think that's right. That he'll sometimes just take a tone that these folks don't like and it's hard to pin down what exactly it is that's setting them off, but it just seems like a vibe thing. And then the second point about Crenshaw, just really fast, I think, is that he's a younger guy and he sort of sometimes gets in the muck with these guys. I mean, he posts a lot on Twitter. He's younger. This isn't like John Cornyn, the like 70 something year old senator who got booed at this very same convention in Texas, who probably needs a staffer to tell him like what a, a shit poster is. Like Dan Crenshaw is intimately familiar like with the concept of a shit poster. And so I do wonder too, if it's Crenshaw's sort of willingness or perhaps even like yearness to boogie here and speak with these folks in their own language kind of invites some of this stuff too yeah i mean you can imagine i mean you, you know you think of uh of confronting kind of an old like white-haired senator in his 70s i mean that guy is on his way out but whereas crenshaw i mean he's 38 he's more or less in the same generation as some of these figures i think they see him as perhaps offering an alternative future for the republican party which is to say it's still still very conservative and hard right but perhaps not a place for groypers i mean crenshaw obviously a wounded veteran who seems to as you said i mean mix it up and kind of be like, yeah, what these guys identify as after this obese cartoon frog. Yeah, like, I don't take that very seriously. <laughs> and it, that does seem to get under their skin. Briefly, you mentioned the John Cornyn thing. Um, now, obviously, John Cornyn's a top-ranking Senate Republican. What's his exact position? He was the former number two to Mitch McConnell and is not currently because of term limits, but is widely considered to be a possible successor to McConnell whenever McConnell steps down. Got it. So, yeah, I mean, this guy is a big deal in the Republican Senate, and he's also the lead Republican negotiator on the gun deal which looks set to really satisfy nobody. But just in the past few days, I mean, you've really seen a, a big uptick in the anger, I think, among the party grassroots at, at Cornyn for things like closing the boyfriend loophole on red flag laws, stuff like that. So I think both of these incidents, both of which happened at the GOP convention in Houston, I think suggests a lot of tumult, in particular, of gun laws in the party. I think that's right. Did we look at the follow-up tweets after this kerfluffle and the parting shot from Congressman Crenshaw, which, again, it gets weirder, but... He retweeted the, the Crenshaw retweeted the media article that said that this dude Stein was physically assaulted. So take that for what you will. But Crenshaw's tweet was, quote, this is what happens when angry little boys like at Alex Stein don't grow up and can't get girlfriends, dot, 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 shrug emoji. End quote. And <laughs> he called him an incel, essentially. He called him an incel. And then Alex Stein retweeted Crenshaw's tweet. I mean, I think for him, the life of, of kind of one of these kind of right-wing YouTube provocateurs is all about attention. So, I mean, the more attention, the better. That's right. All right. So, Sam, you've been monitoring the January 6th committee hearings. What is going on? What has been revealed? And what do we have to look forward to? If that's a way to put it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. So, the panel is really methodically churning through all the hearings that they had set up, all of which had really high-profile witnesses. So last week, they were supposed to have two hearings, had to postpone one of them due to video issues. They've been spooling together a lot of video and stuff, so I can't imagine how much those staffers are working. But they did have one last week where this really conservative judge, Michael Luddig, went there on the stand. And, and you know, the, the, the goal there seemed to really 
B, to like lend as much conservative credibility as possible to the case that the committee seems to be making very pointedly now, which is basically all of this is Trump's fault pretty squarely and everything else is sort of ancillary from that. So Luttig had a very long statement in front of the committee and in front of the cameras. And he's a big deal witness. And this is sort of a star person here. He advised Mike Pence as he was trying to navigate his responsibilities during the transition and all the stop the steal stuff. And I think one thing that came up last week that is sort of an interesting tension point in the hearings is that some of the sort of usual suspect liberal folks on Twitter were sort of decrying the hearing as like sort of celebration of Mike Pence, like lionizing Mike Pence as, as sort of this hero of democracy, which is definitely something that Luddick did when that makes a lot of people uneasy. Like it wasn't entirely complicated <laughs> that Mike Pence could not overturn the presidential election using his sort of perfunctory power on January 6th. And it's sort of interesting that the January 6th which is sort of turning out to be this like actually really potent vehicle for exposing the depth of what Trump did and the abuses of his power is also doubling as this lionization of a character that so many Donald Trump critics really don't like and Mike Pence. Well, I do think it's interesting. I mean, the committee among its functions seems to be just pumping out all these pictures of Mike Pence on January 6th with that all could have the caption like record scratch. Yep, that's me. You're probably wondering how <laughs> I ended up here, right? Like he's like hiding. He's hiding in the loading dock. He's hiding in some office and he's just watching these videos of Trump. And he's saying like, hey, I'm Mike Pence. You know, hey, they're talking about killing me. Well, there was that one photo where they got him not to interrupt you, but we have to mention it where he's literally photographed like holding his phone to his face, looking at a Trump tweet on January 6th. A guy who really kind of like blundered into this whole thing and kind of the classic kind of like Trump flunky who finds himself really jammed up by the boss at the end of the day. Sam, what else? I mean, there's a lot of talk about John Eastman, the Trump lawyer who is mixed up in all this stuff. The guy who memorably, I think we found out last week, talked about saying, oh, by the way, if the pardon list isn't closed, could you mind penciling old John Eastman onto that? (laughs) What did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty wild, right? But there's an important thing here with the Eastman stuff. And I think for the better part of the last year, Eastman has been confirmed through news reporting and through the work of the January 6th committee and other stuff to sort of be like the architect, if you can call that, of this like kind of shambolic house of cards that was the Donald Trump 2020 stop the steal legal defense. And the committee has to spotlight what he did and the extent of his communications with Trump world and also potentially the spouses of Supreme Court justices who might be deciding (laughs) any cases related to the 2020 election. But as our mutual friend, Ben Swin has reported in recent days for, for another publication. Trump <laughs> seems to be setting up John Eastman sort of as the scapegoat, the fall guy. Like, oh, well, he was coming in with all these wild theories and it was really this guy. And we really were the normal folks. Bill Stepien, the campaign manager for Trump 2020. I don't think he used this word, but like, did you guys see this online that he was like, well, we're like normal Trump, like as opposed to dark MAGA or, or whatever you want to call it. So I think there's a tension here between like that the committee is going to have to navigate in really exposing Eastman's like pretty considerable role here, while maybe not playing into what could be a playbook from Trump and and his people to make Eastman the fall guy. So Sam, looking forward, we've seen the emergence now of yet another documentarian. These characters who say, oh yeah, by the way, I have a bunch of footage. Are y'all interested in that? Previously, we saw the documentary guy who had what was frankly to me a little disappointing video of kind of shot from far away of the Proud Boys meeting with the head of the Oath Keepers. Maybe I'm being a little harsh here, but felt like that guy, that witness fell a little flat. Now we have a new documentarian who apparently, unbeknownst to practically everyone, has a bunch of footage of the Trump inner circle going back to January 6th. What are we to make of this? Well, the number one thing to make of this is like, did the Trump White House just let any documentarian who was (laughs) saying like, hey, could we just get a lot of behind the scenes footage of like the U.S. president doing stuff the U.S. president does maybe at like a sensitive time? Like, could we just get a bunch of access? And the Trump people are just sort of like, yeah, that sounds good. I mean, seriously. And I don't even know who this guy is. It sounds like he's British. So a British guy hits up the White House and asks for like extensive behind the scenes access and gets it. And now (laughs) 
has potentially explosive footage. I mean, the thing to take away from it maybe is also like, who else was granted extensive access? Are more British documentarians going to come out of the woodwork with reams of footage? (laughs) Right, because this is now, because the other guy was British too. Right. Yeah, so do we have Louis Thoreau? Do we have that guy who makes all the depressing left-wing documentaries? Are these guys ready to to come out? I mean, Louise Mensch, I mean, you can't keep her out of a conversation. Exactly. Exactly. So we shall see. I mean, the other thing I would say is if you have a bunch of explosive January 6th footage, you got to put your documentary together a little faster. I mean, supposedly this is coming out this summer. I guess he says he says he sold it, but it's like, okay, it's been, I guess, a year and a half or so. So that'll be interesting to see as well. He's not saving his scoops for the book. That's right. Yeah, it's very controversial these days. Sam, closing this section out, what's one more thing you're looking for as we begin another week of hearing? So today on Tuesday, the committee is holding a hearing featuring some of the real firsthand witnesses who bore the brunt of Trump and his allies' attempts to subvert the election in key states. So the the main one there is Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, who resisted a months-long onslaught from Trump personally, who folks might recall Trump called Raffensperger and just asked him to find the exact number of votes that would have made up Biden's margin in Georgia. Raffensperger resisted those. And, you know, it's coming at an interesting time because people thought Raffensperger would really pay with his political career for having done so. And that Republican primary voters would vote to recall him in a primary after all this. But just a couple weeks ago, Brad Raffensperger won his primary against a Trump-backed challenger without so much as having to go to a runoff. So I think this will be interesting. I'm not totally sure what we'll hear that we haven't heard before, just because Raffensperger has spoken really extensively on the record for a long time about all this. But I do think the context is kind of important. And I don't know if he's spoken so extensively since his win. So he might be even more hot takes coming from Brad Raffensperger now that he doesn't have a primary or anything like that to worry about. Well, it sounds like there's plenty more to come from the January 6th committee. Sam, on another topic, I think you've been following some things shaking out in the new Republican attack on drag queens, which suddenly over the past roughly two or three years, they've decided are these sort of plagues upon the land. Yet it seems as though there's a little hypocrisy going on in the Arizona governor's race. That's right, Will. The Arizona governor's race features a couple prominent Republicans in the primary, which is going to be in August, I believe. But Number one on the list in MAGA world is this person, Carrie Lake, a former Phoenix-based TV journalist, I believe, who's really become sort of a like celebrity in the MAGA wing. I believe she's got the Trump endorsement and is running in the primary. And she's basically taken up sort of the most hard line positions that you can imagine in today's version of the Republican Party. So, you know, is a lead proponent of all these conspiracies about the election in Arizona and has sort of gone far to the right on basically all the culture war issues du jour. And top of the list right now for conservatives, obviously, is this anti-trans, anti-LGBT stuff. And Carrie Lake has, has tweeted and done lots of, of public commentary sort of feeding into this. And all of that was enough for the person who is widely recognized as the queen of Phoenix drag, (laughs) whose nom de guerre is Barbara Seville. Barbara just had enough of this posturing from Carrie Lake and went on social media last week to recount her own experiences with Carrie Lake. And I'm just going to read a little bit from the Facebook post from Barbara, who said, now that Carrie Lake has waded into the war on drag queens, know that she is a complete hypocrite. I've performed for Carrie's birthday. I've performed in her home, parenthetical, with children present, and I've performed for her at some of of the seediest bars in Phoenix. Here's really the best part. (laughs) She's come to my parties and has been asked to leave because door people thought she was too intoxicated to remain on premises. And Barbara helpfully passes along some photos documenting her relationship with Carrie and some of these scenes. So an interesting turn here. I think what's remarkable here is that Carrie Lake, so to set this up, I mean, Carrie Lake has definitely joined this Republican attack on drag queens, which is sort of one of the vanguards of the broader attack on LGBT people that they're up to, along with trans women in sports. And so just recently, Carrie Lake tweeted, they kicked God out of schools and welcomed the drag queens. I mean, she's really going after these drag queens. But I will say Carrie Lake also appears to be perhaps the Phoenix area's number one drag show fan. Because I mean, this is not like someone who went to a drag brunch once. I mean, these are pictures of her in, she's drag 
dressed as Elvis. Barbara Seville is dressed, I, I believe, as Marilyn Monroe. I mean, Carrie Lake is clearly friends with this drag queen who is also named Richard Stevens. I mean, it is, I just think it's remarkable sort of what a turnabout this is. And I think it really shows if, I guess for me, this is sort of a microcosm of the way that this anti-LGBT, these attacks have sort of appeared really over the past year. I mean, they've been bubbling really among the fringes for the past few years, but in the way that they really become like mainstream Republican talking points just in the past year. And this idea that if you're thinking like, this kind of seemed to come out of nowhere. These guys were not acting like this was such an issue before. Well, Carrie Lake, I, I think, is exhibit number one of sort of opportunistically jumping on it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think that Carrie Leake's response to this whole story, once it got out there on social media, is pretty instructive to how potentially damaging she views it, right? Like, if her rule of politics is the more potent the attack, the stronger <laughs> and maybe more vehement the response is from sort of the affected party, I, I think Lake's response here would certainly qualify. I mean, just to start off, Lake said basically that she had never had this drag queen over to perform at her house, disputed a couple other like factual elements, also said she plans to sue for defamation, but really went after the media for sort of running with this account from Barbara Seville, Queen of Phoenix Drag. And Lake just had a statement that went on a sort of bizarre tangent about the media, ending with this phrase, which honestly combines some Trump boilerplate with a new and sort of disturbing spin here. Quote, the media is the enemy of the people and frankly, the right hand of the devil. So this also ties in with my fascination with the growing demonology on the right. This idea that the devil is a real guy and we can casually just sort of accuse people of working for the devil. I wasn't aware that this is a thing. Oh yeah, this is a passion of mine. Inevitably people say, oh, well, Republicans have been talking to the devil forever. But I think just over the past few years, I think with QAnon, there's other things that you kind of you go to these events and you listen to these speeches and just casually people will say this idea that the devil is like a physical guy who's out there trying to get us and working within our politics. I think it's something I'm seeing more. And certainly in this case, I mean, it's interesting. She's kind of upping the ante, right? It's like the media is the enemy of the people. Well, oh, Steve Bannon's been saying that for years. That doesn't hit different. But now we got to say you got to up the ante a bit and, and say the right hand of the devil. Just in general here. I mean, I think you're right that it's interesting that this drag queen thing, because I think it's a pretty compelling attack. Certainly in a primary where every other Republican, I would assume, is also pretty eager to jump on the anti-drag queen thing. And so you've got these pictures of Carrie Lake, this hypocrisy angle. It's always interesting when it sort of seems like a candidate. It's like, oh, no, Carrie, like you're spewing the talking points too fast. Like you're just it's like, what about Hunter Biden? What about Nick Sandman? Like, I think a more disciplined candidate or one maybe that wasn't on the back foot. You keep kind of some of that stuff in reserve. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, there was a lot of desperation there to go on the attack about the media here, which is really just playing like a normal role here. These attacks didn't generate in an article. I mean, it generated in a social media post from the person publicly alleging this. So it's not as if there was some like anonymously sourced story in the Arizona Republic that detailed Carrie Lake's love of drag queens. Like it was publicly out there and the media just reported on it. So there's always desperation there when the first target is the media. But yeah, her statement, including why does the media look into Hunter Biden? I mean, we're getting a the straws there to be grasped at. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, so Will, who do we have on the show this week? Sure. So this week we have Jessica Hoosman. She's the editorial director for VoteBeat, a nonprofit newsroom covering voting rights. Obviously, voting rights and the potential restriction of voting rights are a hot topic this year, especially as we head into a cycle where some I think pretty wacky Secretary of State candidates on the right are winning the nominations. People who are convinced that the 2020 election was stolen and they're going to make sure that doesn't happen this time. I'm eager to talk with them. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. This week on Fever Dreams, we have Jessica Hoosman. 
She's the editorial director for VoteBeat, a nonprofit newsroom covering voting rights. Jessica, welcome to Fever Dreams. Thank you. I listen to this podcast every week. I'm pretty pumped to be here. <laughs> well, that's great. Oh, that's yeah. great to hear. <laughs> that's wonderful. So, Jessica, first of all, how do things look for voting rights as we head into the midterm? Are things looking good? Listen, no, they're not. <laughs> I think that what's come into pretty sharp relief as these January 6th hearings have gone on is that even though Trump and his closest folks knew that what they were saying was absolute nonsense, laws were still passed as a result of that nonsense that have actual ramifications for voters across the country. And so Texas has passed a very restrictive law, Georgia, Arizona, Florida, Pennsylvania is doing weird stuff. I mean, all of this is a direct result of these lies that they're telling. And so because of that, elections are materially less good than they once were, which is not great. Yeah. So I wanted to really drill in on like a phenomenon that seems to have really become more serious in the last couple of weeks, especially in primary season, which is these folks who not only like believe and espouse the big lie being elevated as Republican nominees for statewide offices that have jurisdiction over elections, but folks who like were actually involved in trying to subvert the 2020 election, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, this guy, Jim Marchant in Nevada. So I'm wondering if you can like take us a little bit into what you're seeing on that front. And I guess beyond that, like, we know it's not good if, say, you were a lead proponent of election conspiracies to, like, actually be an election administrator in a state. We know that's bad. But, like, what are the universe of bad things that could happen in a state like Nevada if, if an ultra big lie sort of 2020 truther is in charge of elections? You know what? This is such an interesting thing to discuss because it's actually very different state to state. Like, I'm sure at this point your listeners know this, but elections are governed top down in states very differently, even states next door to each other. And so Mastriano is actually kind of an interesting one to think about because because of the way that the Constitution gives all of the power to organize and control elections in the way that they run to the states. And so if you look at the state constitution and how it sort of divides up election power, that's a lot more instructive than sort of taking a whole nation look at this. And Mastriano, as governor, would be able to appoint the secretary of state in Pennsylvania. That is not an elected position. And then he would essentially be able to to do quite a lot through that secretary of state because the secretary of state has a lot of unilateral authority in Pennsylvania that the secretary of state does not have in other states. So in Texas, for example, the secretary of state is appointed but has almost no authority. So Greg Abbott could appoint a total Yahoo in Texas and it wouldn't have a huge impact on voters day to day, but that is not the case in Pennsylvania. Okay. So that's super interesting and like an important distinction. So like say Mastriano wins the governorship in PA and appoints somebody with his views or similar views to be secretary of state. 2024 comes up. Pennsylvania is going to be a key battleground in that state. I get that it's going to be different from place to place, but like how concerned should folks be about the like integrity of that state's election, but if a person like that is in charge, like what can they do? Really super concerned. So like just for a kind of primer on this, let's think about all of the things that went wrong in Pennsylvania over the last couple of years, right? Like there was that whole naked ballot episode where all of those celebrities filmed themselves in the nude being like, make sure you put your ballot in to the other ballot before you send it in in Pennsylvania. Like that whole debacle. There has been mail-in ballot decisions that have gone all the way up the state Supreme Court a couple of times. And in that, like in the common thread with all of these things is that Pennsylvania's laws governing elections are very broad. They are open to pretty severe interpretation and counties are the ones that actually administer elections. And so the Secretary of State's has office has a lot of rulemaking authority to make sure that counties are following the laws consistently or not, right? So the Pennsylvania Secretary of State has wielded this authority with sort of varying effect in the last couple of years, which is sometimes they say, okay, everybody has to do it this way. And then sometimes they give no rules at all. And so 
ballots are counted in different ways, county to county. And so based on what the Secretary of State's office chooses to use its authority on and chooses not to use its authority on, they can actually dictate a lot of the way that elections are run and that ballots are counted and which ballots do get counted and which ballots don't get counted. And so his nonsense could actually do real material harm. There wouldn't be a lot of hurdles in his way. How many states are you looking at in which there is a Republican nominee for whether it's governor or attorney general or secretary of state or another important statewide position where they've like won the nomination and are deep in the conspiracy land on 2020 or on track to like, I guess, how big is the scope here of battleground and on battleground? states that are going to have these folks potentially in power? It is not as big of a pool as it was a couple of weeks ago, because a lot of these very extreme candidates like Jody Heist in Georgia, for example, have flamed out in the primaries and were rejected pretty soundly by primary voters. They have sneaked through in a couple of states, right? They are on the ballot in state and local races in Nevada and Colorado, for example. There are several clerks in Michigan that I'm pretty concerned about. And so in a small handful of places, there are people who have sort of like skated through in what tend to be very, very Republican districts where the primaries can be a little bit more extreme. But I think that just looking at the number of people who began a race for one of these offices, even if they weren't successful in the primary and like looking at that drop in number and seeing that as a success and seeing that as like a, oh, we're like, we're going to step over this crazy. It's going to be fine is a little premature because these people who claim these things are still in elected office, right? Like, Jody Heiss is not going anywhere as a representative in Georgia as a lawmaker there, right? Like he's going to run for election again in Georgia. And a lot of his support and a lot of the money that he got from his campaign come from people who espouse these beliefs really firmly. And so just because these people didn't win for these roles doesn't mean they won't continue to have influence in the Republican Party in their states. Yeah. And I think you bring up too, like an interesting point, which is like, there are just so many, I mean, hundreds of county level officials with a lot of power. And we're not all like tracking like every one of those races or even a small number of them. And these are folks with a lot of power. I mean, I guess the worst case scenario for a lot of people is come 2024, whether it's like a governor or even like a county election clerk in like a key county, if we're looking at the sort of margins we saw in 2020, 10,000 votes in Georgia or however many in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, where you have right all takes is one county level official to cast out on the results or to sort of freelance. And all of a sudden you have a huge crisis. I mean, is that something that is viewed as sort of a live possibility when you get down to like just sort of the typically more obscure officials who like might escape sort of scrutiny that folks like Mastriano are. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I think that a really great immediate example of this is Otero County, Nevada. And I don't know if you guys followed this. Yeah, I was just about to ask you about this. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty freaking bananas. This is also the home of a man named, and I always mispronounce it, Coy Griffin. Is that how you say it, Will? That's how I would say it, I think. I mean, it is remarkable. I mean, this is the founder of the Cowboys for Trump, guy who got indicted related to January 6th. And the fact that he's involved in this as well, I was like, are there three people in this state? It's like, well, don't put him in charge of elections. Well, so that's what I was going to say. I mean, like, we're talking about Otero County, Nevada, like materially held up the whole state of Nevada's, like, certification of its election this past week because this man and the local election officials there decided that there was something weird happening with the ballots and they didn't want to certify it. And we're talking about a county with a population, like a total population of people living in it, like not registered voters, 66,000. Like that has made national news because this one county made the decision not to certify its elections on totally specious, obviously, grounds. But that's sort of neither here nor there, right? Like they did it. And a judge has forced them to certify the ballots. There are there are officials getting fined there now. But they have still injected a lot of uncertainty into the system. And I don't mean actual uncertainty, right? Like 
there is nothing wrong with the damn machines in Otero County. Like there's nothing went wrong with ballot counting, right? But the uncertainty is is real for voters who do not engage with the electoral process or with election administration in a nuanced enough way for them to be able to like really meaningfully fact check the stuff on their own. And so if trusted people in a small county are doing these crazy things, like we're talking about doubt and confusion that's going to last for an entire voting generation. And I and I know that that sounds dramatic, but like that, that is how voting works, right? Like it's not something we do every day that we could like change our mind on and, and that we think about on a daily basis, like what car we drive or like what gas station we go to, right? Like voting is something that we like maybe do once every four years and think about just about as much, right? So like once you form an intractable opinion about voting and the way you do it, you tend to have that opinion for a long time. And so this is really damaging. I think that's a great point, Jessica. And I think the whole Otero County saga, I think in the, in the mainstream media and in the court system, I mean, this was treated as this awful aberration. But at the same time, I was reading a lot of content on right wing telegram and getting emails from people who were saying like, why aren't you covering the liberation of Otero County? And so so certainly I think this is seen as even though the commissioner eventually back down that the, this is sort of seen as perhaps the first of many of these incidents to come we talked a lot about candidates in terms of handling elections but i mean these states are also passing a lot of laws what would you say are some of the most draconian laws you've seen aimed at, at restricting voting this is an interesting question i mean i think that some of the most sort of shockingly bizarre laws are have and continue to come out of Arizona. What's going on there? I went out there last year to hang out with Baby Q, and it seems like they're really up to stuff. Those folks, they've really got their ear to the ground in crazy town, I think. They're just passing these laws that come straight out of right-wing conspiracy election playbooks, right? There is a bill that's sort of like flitting around and they're doing like a pilot test on making sure that ballots are secure and they're printed by a company that like insert what they call holograms into ballots for security. And like this company has no experience printing ballots and like no business doing that job. They're preventing people from using mail-in drop boxes and really substantially attempting to roll back the way that Arizona votes by mail, even though Republicans in Arizona essentially invented vote by mail. And that's not an exact exaggeration. And so they're sort of like having to step on their own toes in order to follow Trump's line on this. And they've just been kind of like handed their ass every time they try to do something like this, right? They tried to do cyber ninjas. That was wild and it failed so hard. A lot of these bills are not passing, but they are inching them forward, right? Even if the bill doesn't pass, they then put it in the budget to study it as a pilot project just to keep that idea alive for a little bit longer. So like a lot of weird, crazy things are hanging on in Arizona for a long time. People talk a lot about how awful Georgia's bill was. And I think that it's telling that the thing that people understand most about the Georgia law is that they've like prevented you from handing out food and water in line, which I'll grant you is very stupid. But the bill also split up long lines and forced polling locations that had long waits to push to multiple precincts. And the average wait time to vote in Georgia last year was three minutes. So like nobody's friggin' starving to death in line to vote in Georgia, right? Like the Georgia law was not nearly as black and white bad as people made it out to be. Like it wasn't good, but I don't think it was like uniformly bad. But Florida's, on the other hand, pretty uniformly bad in all of the ways that people sort of, I think, accuse Georgia's law of being quite bad and restrictive. Florida's actually was. I guess just surveying this general sort of unprecedented landscape here, Jessica, I wonder if, if, if there are any signs that you see of like places going the other direction, trying to 
expand and strengthening voting? Are there any like glimmers of hope there on the horizon for folks out there who might be concerned by a lot of the stuff that you've had to share just from your understanding of reporting? Yeah, you know what? Actually, yes. And I'm glad that you asked me this question because nobody ever asked me about anything good. So thank you. It's been interesting to cover voting in the last five years because especially in sort of the wake of the Obama election in 2008, voting rights became a bigger thing on a national scale as a policy point and a talking point than it had in a couple of decades, right? And there was this big push at first to force federal legislation on voting issues. And that even carried through to the first couple of years of the Biden administration, right? We saw HR1 try to get forced through and it like died disastrously. I wrote about that for the Daily Beast, in fact. But those things failed But I think because those things failed, we have not noticed the very successful and very similar pieces of legislation floating around at the state level. So Virginia, for example, passed its own Voting Rights Act. New York, just this week, passed its own Voting Rights Act. And so these are easier, actually, to do at the state level than they are at the national level because, and I know this is going to blow some minds, there is no federally protected right to vote. It's not in the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't guarantee anybody the right to vote. It sets standards for if you're allowing people to vote, you can't discriminate on these bases, but allows you to take that vote away. It is not inherent. There is nothing in the Constitution that that gives everyone the right to vote. But there is something that gives people the right to vote in a lot of state constitutions. And so these laws are easier to pass. They have court precedent and Republicans in these states are more likely to get behind them because there is a sort of historical basis for their inclusion in state legislation rather than federal legislation. So I think that there has really been more success on the state level than people realize. Yeah, that's super interesting. I recall reading your column in the Daily Beast, in fact, dailybeast.com, on the shortcomings of HR1. And just like looking back, I mean, I don't know how much interest this will be to our listeners, but just how like existential that push was from like Democrats in DC to get that done. And then they didn't get it done. And then I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're just going to move on and how existential (laughs) it was. But meanwhile, the states are doing stuff that actually is workable. Exactly. And that's what's been frustrating for me as somebody who covers this stuff. And VoteBeat takes like a local view of this. Like I am the editorial director, so I look at this from a national perspective. But we have like individual newsrooms in Texas and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Arizona. And so our focus is a lot more drilled down. And like I care much more about state legislation than I do about federal legislation. One, because the federal government doesn't actually have a ton of authority on elections anyway. And so federal bills are always going to be sort of a band-aid. States have a much more direct line to voters and they get stuff done on voting much more quickly and efficiently than the federal government does. And so I think that the Democrats, like insane messaging around HR1, where they were like, if we don't pass this, the world's going to end today, right? And then it didn't pass and the world didn't end, right? And they just had been like freaking out about this since 2019. I mean, it was it was a very ineffective messaging strategy that ultimately really like didn't rise to the moment that it was in. And like, it was very disappointing to watch that play out, like candidly. This question just came up, like, as we sort of look ahead, I mean, like people, maybe this is a news you can use sort of thing of like, I don't know, I feel like people often who are consuming news especially at election time on election days and nights like there's just so much like technical stuff that goes into how votes are counted and how this whole process works that I feel like no matter like the political stripe obviously there's a whole segment of people who seem to kind of be willfully ignoring the realities of facts but like it seems that even if you're trying to understand in good faith that like there's just things that people don't know and there's you see misinformation spread about ways that elections are administered or ways votes are being counted so I guess like what would you tell people who want to be sure that they're understanding election results as they come in and like disputes and challenges like what do you think is like the number one thing that like people need to know heading into this election season just to make sure they're like getting things right i have a very specific answer to this question and it all involves a story about my mother so 
strap in. So if somebody is really like, I want to understand how elections are conducted, then what they actually, the question they actually need to answer is how does my county run elections? Because like I can answer questions all day long about voting machines, but the counties use different ones in every county, which means that they count ballots differently in every county, which means that things are tabulated differently in every county. And all of that data is collected at the state level, but the state is really not the one doing it. And so the best way to involve yourself and to get like to know everything very quickly about this is to volunteer as a poll worker once, just once. Like, I would love it if you did it over and over and over again, but you're going to go to a half-day poll worker training and do one election day, and you will know everything about how your county does elections. Because it is a lot of information, but none of the information is that difficult to understand. And so if somebody gives it to you, then you understand it. So I've been covering voting since before 2016, and my mother, who just like doesn't understand at all what I do, I think, probably, and spent a long time telling people I worked for Politico when I worked for ProPublica. So anyway. Mm, a classic mix-up. Yes, the peas, they get you. And so she called me out of the blue last year and was like, guess what I've done? I've signed up to be a poll worker in Dallas County. And I was like, oh, dang. Because my parents are like, they're non-college educated white people from Texas. They're like Trump supporters, right? And my mom had, in the same way that many Trump supporters do, like sort of light suspicions. I don't think hers were as big because I do what I do. But like she had light suspicions that the system might have something amiss about it. And she did one poll worker training and volunteered for exactly one election in which she was the precinct captain at her old middle school, which was cute. And I asked her at the end of the day, like, so do you think the election was secure? Like, do you think anybody could have tampered with it? And she goes, you know, Jessica, I just really don't understand how you even could manipulate an election. And I was like, holy shit, mom. Like, <laughs> this is a long way to come in a day and a half. And so like, if you want to have a similarly transformative experience, I recommend becoming a poll worker. So that's the takeaway. Become a poll worker and learn exactly how many secret watermarked ballots your local polling place is using. <laughs> right. Keep an eye on the ground for like shards of bamboo shoots, right? <laughs> we all have to be alert. All the time. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. That's Jessica Hoosman. She's the editorial director at VoteBeat. They're at VoteBeat.org. She's also on Twitter at, at Jessica Hoosman, H-U-S-E-M-A-N. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was fun. So, Will, tell us what you have gleaned from the deepest, darkest depths of hell <laughs> for our content this week. So this is our weekly segment, Fresh Hell, when I really bring you just the grimmest stuff, the stuff that I looked at and looked at and I thought, oh, no, and I just couldn't resist sharing it with the listeners. So this week, we mentioned the Texas Republican Convention, which is, of course, held in my home city of Houston. I hope everyone enjoyed the kolaches and the Whataburger. But, but I was reading the platform, and the platform that they agreed on, I mean, look, we're talking about the Texas Republican Party here. Number one, this does not per se have the force of law. And also, I mean, I think you could look back many years in this platform, probably would look pretty crazy. However, something struck me reading this platform. I think it was about maybe 40 pages, maybe 30, and, and I flipped through it. So I just wanted to highlight some things, kind of give folks where we're at. I mean, this is probably maybe the leading Republican party in the country at the state level. So we've got the stuff like they say being gay is a quote abnormal lifestyle. So we sort of get that sense of that anti-gay pushback. There remains a commitment to Texas secession. They say they want to, I guess you could call it Texas. They want to have a referendum next year on it. And it's sort of like i don't know i mean things are sort of trending in the right direction for republicans i think y'all should you'll probably want to stay in the union see where things shake out sam where do you stand on the texas succession idea oh gosh well so the thing here is like and you have the perspective here will i mean when i look at this platform i see a lot of that new hotness in republican ideas here but i also see some of the old hits and secession is the oldest possible hit in the eyes of hardcore <laughs> texas right wingers is that right 
That's absolutely right. I mean, even some liberal Texans like to think about the idea of secession when things get rough and saying, I'm out of here. Speaking of Texas, very briefly, the platform also touches on some very like internecine Texas issues. Like there's an enormous amount of drama over this monument in front of the Alamo. And I haven't had a chance to compare in the platform, but I would say the part that's devoted to defending the Alamo and the memory of the Alamo in this particular modern monument that was built in front of the Alamo, I think is larger than much of what's spent on, say, education in the document. I mean, they especially say the Alamo quote should be remembered and not reimagined. And then they promise punishments for public institutions that disrespect the heroic actions that occurred during the Texas Revolution. There we see kind of the Texas version of the sort of defense of this very idealized version of American history. But as you said, I mean, a lot of these are sort of classic items. But when we start getting into, there's other things that haven't gotten a ton of attention, but it's interesting for me to see how these sort of right-wing media, these kind of wacko things in plan and in some cases remain on the platform for years and years. So as you said, the new hotness, I would say, is the Great Reset, which earned plenty of discussion in the platform. The Great Reset is this idea that the World Economic Forum, the folks who do Davos, this sort of milk toast group of enormous corporations who are saying, maybe we can make capitalism slightly less brutal so people don't revolt, that this is like George Soros's proletarian takeover. And so they include a lot of items on the Great Reset, essentially saying we're going to resist this. This is believed to be this moment where you have to live in a pod, you don't own anything, you have to eat bugs instead of beef, stuff like this. And so they have a whole section on this and they say, we're going to stop these woke corporations. And then we get kind of the throwback to the Obama era Great Reset, which was this thing called Agenda 21. Do you remember this, Sam? I sure do, yeah. I remember when Obama put us under the UN's yoke. Agenda 21 was another one of these kind of vaguely defined plots, supposedly from the UN, and to sort of institute a one-world government. But the Texans remain on the lookout for Agenda 21. They say they don't want anything to do with Agenda 21. They also like have a pretty broad purview of what counts as like an international takeover. For example, they don't want international baccalaureate schools. <laughs> no, that's a big movement. Moving on, the one that really struck me was that they say we have to harden the power grid against EMP attacks. Now, people may remember the Texas power grid has been in trouble lately, but it wasn't from EMP attacks. It was from being crummy. And so the EMP thing here is this is a long-standing Republican bugaboo among very certain sections, kind of, I would say boomer techies they are very convinced they read like a tom clancy knockoff book that says china launches an electromagnetic pulse attack and things get really rough here so this idea of emps is a big big issue and the texas gop is on the lookout i think it's it's no coincidence that this emp push is happening on the heels of the release of the film moonfall in which emp attacks play a critical role and i'm just saying that people got to be on the lookout for this well, Moonfall was such a hit. I encourage you to watch Moonfall if you're on a plane somewhere, as I was several weeks ago, and need to be awoken to the risks of EMP attacks. I mean, I think Woke Alamo is definitely a threat to the sovereignty and safety of Texans, but you got to watch Moonfall because that'll scare you straight. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think Moonfall earned a shout out in the platform, but there's always next year. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.